Hello, um, I'm on tour. So uh, two weeks from now, if you're listening to this when it first comes out, I am in Adelaide doing my show, Will Informed at the Adelaide Fringe. Uh, tickets selling fast in a slightly smaller venue than usual because we booked a little bit late, to be honest. But uh, it means that it is filling up very quickly. So if you want to come and see Will Informed while I'm in Adelaide, it is there from March the 3rd for two weeks. So buy tickets to that. Uh, now, if you want to come along, Adelaide. Missed Adelaide last year for the Fringe Festival, so very excited to be back with a whole bunch of brand new jokes for the Adelaide audience. And then after that, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the first two weeks I'll be doing my Legal show, which is my show all about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. And then for the next two weeks after that, I will be doing 10 different shows because it's my completely improvised stand-up night. Uh, every show completely different. Come and see what you're talking about, Will. It's going to be so exciting and fun. Uh, so excited to do what you're talking about, Will, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival for the very first time. So come along and see it. We're going to have a really, really good time. Um, I'm just, I've been having so, so much fun doing stand-up this year. It's been absolutely brilliant. And thank you to everybody else who's come out to the shows so far. And I'm touring all over Australia and then probably some other places as well later on in the year. So comedy.com.au is the place to go to find all the links to my shows around Australia. Today's episode... A uh, good one for people who've asked me a lot about uh, medicinal cannabis over the years. Dr. Alistair uh, Vickery, uh, it, his, it's his area of expertise, so he's going to talk us through a lot of that on the show today, but just a really fascinating guy to have a chat to. So uh, please look up Dr. L after this, and uh, if you are somebody who, you know, particularly is interested or needs his services, then, um, you know, we'll leave all the contact details and you can get through to him. So... Uh, enjoy this episode it was really nice to have him on the podcast if you'd like this podcast and you'd like to keep supporting it to come out weekly patreon.com slash willosophy is the place to go to chuck in a buck keep the lights on and make sure that everybody gets paid enjoy today's episode Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is actually, it's not the first podcast you will hear of Willosophy in uh, 2020, but it's the first episode that I've recorded in this new year. So uh, very excited to have today's guest here. Oh, I didn't actually mention to today's guest, he said, is there anything that I need to prepare? And I told him, of course, you know, I'm going to ask you if you have a philosophy. That is basically how the podcast starts or often how it ends if I've forgotten to ask it of the person uh, in, the, in the hour or hour and a half that I've talked to them. However, that is the conceit of the podcast. But I forgot to warn you also that this is the other way the podcast starts. I say, who are you? Oh, okay. My name's Alastair Vickery. I'm a, a GP, uh, an academic, um, a father, um, a grandfather, and... Um, you know, very happy in working in cannabinoid-based medicines, which is a very new field for me and uh, been pretty exciting. So that is how we met uh, yeah. <laughs> through that particular area of your life, not through being a father or a grandfather. No, no, no. I don't think I'm your father. You're not my GP. <laughs> I'm not your GP. <laughs> However, that little kicker you had at the end, M. Night Shyamalan style, uh, yeah. after everything else was... Uh, yes, cannabinoid. Can no, I'm going to mess yeah. this up so many times in this interview. Anyway, cannabinoid medicine, medicine. based medicines. Yes, yeah. based medicines. Now it's a euphemism. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, um, <coughs> marijuana has been used for millennia mm -hmm. um, for use in medicine at least ten thousand years in recorded history, 
um, and uh, it's been vilified for the last 80 years and been illegal and only recently has been made legal in Australia for prescriptions. So cannabinoid-based medicines are a little bit different than marijuana or weed or dope because it's a highly refined pharmaceutical product. And so it gives us an opportunity, particularly in Australia, um, to determine how effective it is and in whom and at what sort of doses. Now, are you some sort of like hippie, Cheech and Chong, Snoop Dogg style, you know, stoner who's just wandered into this area? How did you get interested in this as an area of medicine? <laughs> well, it, I mean, that's a good question because um, most of my colleagues, and there's a lot of resistance amongst medical colleagues for prescribing this medicine, um, everything they learnt about cannabis, they learnt from stoner movies. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, I was talking to a young doc who we're going to employ uh, soon. And I said, everything our colleagues know, they learnt from Cheech and Chong. And he said, who's Cheech and Chong? Mm. Yeah. Generation gap. Yep. I'm afraid. Either that or he watched too much Cheech and Chong yeah. and he just can't remember who yeah, Cheech yeah. and Chong are. So uh, if I say stoner movies, yes. then perhaps people will understand. Um, but Pineapple Express yeah, right. <laughs> for the, for the modern day generation, yeah. well, I think <laughs> Rick and Morty. Still think that's I'm not too, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting all millennial on me. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, no, I got interested in this because, um, I was approached by a company that was setting up these clinics, um, uh, because of my academic background. So primarily I'm a, a GP academic who has been working in the university and publishing research on chronic disease for two decades. And uh, they asked me to come and have a look at this. And I, of course, said that I would be very interested to look at it as a pharmaceutical product. And um, then they said, well, you should come and work for us. And that got so interesting and the, and the field is um, so new and emerging, particularly in Australia, that I thought this would be something I could get my teeth into. And it's been a fantastic journey just over the last 18 months. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk a lot about that because yeah. your life story and how you got to this point is as fascinating as the topic uh, you know, to which we're talking. So I'll ask the question, okay. do you have a philosophy? And then we can you know, get on with having this other conversation. All right. And, uh, you know, my philosophy is really uh, an aspirational goal rather than um, actually a philosophy because I fail so miserably so many times. Um, and all I could come up with was a list of three. So first, do no harm, sort of the Hippocratic uh, uh, maxim. Um, less is more. And I stole from um, Tim Minchin, West Australian, um, that uh, science is awesome. I mean, that's a pretty good list. First, do no harm. I'm always very fascinated by mm. because it, it is very integral to what it means to be a doctor, isn't that? Well, yes. And <clears throat> of course, then I had to look it up. Mm. Being an academic, I had to say, well, where does it come yeah, from? Of course. course, it doesn't come from... Albert Einstein said it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I read it on the internet. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Baby Yoda said uh, it, I believe. Yeah, I think Saddam Hussein yeah. said it. <laughs> Um, but uh, first do no harm, of course, yeah. is part of Hippocrates' writing yeah. about medicine. But actually what he said was, do good, but first do no harm. Right, yes. Which is actually much better. Yeah, it's much and better, much, isn't it? much bigger mm. philosophy for mm. life. And, you know, that uh, not just about mm. medicine, but about everything, you know, that you try and do good 
and uh, but first thing about what sort of harm you're going to do. But of course, it was coined in the 18th century, not in the back with Hippocrates and the Greeks. But what I love about you choosing that already is that I've learned something. Yeah, you know, I've learned <laughs> something that it is not. It is not the complete, you know, quote. No, no, no. It's and sort of like poor, like poor, like poor Malcolm Fraser. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, life isn't meant to be easy. But we have to work at it, is what he said, or mm. something like that. And so it's been shortened down to life's not meant to be easy. And we'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't really what he's going for. No. Well, it's like the lucky country, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the lucky country wasn't meant as a compliment. No, it wasn't. <laughs> if you read the rest Jesus, of the sentence. <laughs> uh, so I love that. First, do good, but first do no harm yeah. is actually much better than just first do no harm. Yeah. Okay. Love it. So the second one was uh, keep it simple. Is well, that what you said? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, less is more. Less is more. That's right. And that was um, uh, said to me mm. by less is more. That's by better. a jazz saxophonist. Mm -hmm. So I played piano and keyboards in lots and lots of bands, and uh, I thought I was pretty good at the age of twenty, and I've got a lot worse as I've got older. And uh, I was playing along with this guy who's a professional jazz saxophonist, fantastic guy, Uwe Stengel, um, uh, played with Manteca, which was a Perth band. And uh, I was playing along with him and, you know, filling all these riffs. And he said, Alistair, less is more. <laughs> and so I started playing a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did he just mean your contribution to this band? Yeah. Less is more. Yeah. <laughs> In Shut fact, up. A whole lot less if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, it would have been a great comedic joke if you, you'd said to me, I actually have three. And you said... First, do no harm. Second yes. one, less is more. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That's <laughs> a great joke. That would actually would be, I mean, that's it. For a minute, I thought that's where it was going. I was like, this is a good joke. <laughs> uh, okay. So less is more. I understand that. There's, there's some simplicity to that, that I think is very appealing. And then science, what was the Tim science is awesome. Science is awesome. Yep. And, um, that's really a, a philosophy that has driven me most recently because we seem to have lost science as uh, something that we can control uh, in terms of messaging. And, you know, science isn't a belief system. It is, you know, a, a series of observed facts that allow us to gain knowledge. And it's not something that we can argue about. You know, that uh, uh, I've been amazed by the bushfire crisis just recently and uh, the discussion about climate change and people arguing about climate change. The climate is changing. It is warmer and drier. Uh, in the 1970s, some bizarre scientists came up with this theory that it was caused by carbon dioxide and we were increasing the number of parts per million of carbon dioxide. That their theory has continued to hold water and to predict what's happening now just confirms it, but it's still a theory. We don't have a case-controlled trial where we can look at another planet and say, well, if we hadn't had this much carbon dioxide, what would have caused it? But climate change is real. And uh, when I hear the Prime Minister and, and members of his party saying they don't believe in it, then they're not looking at the facts. 
and that 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 I don't understand, and that's happening. Well, but come on, you know that it's just a vast conspiracy by scientists, yeah, to by underfunded scientists, no, to, to make a, <laughs> the fortune that they're all yeah. making of climate science yeah. research. You know this, not not the oil companies yeah. making a huge amount of. Profit there is no way carbon. that last year was the hottest and driest on record because Beryl from uh, you know Mooney Ponds remembers in 1960 <laughs> yeah. a really hot summer. She was really hot. Yeah, I remember so that. That was remembers. terrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but. But that's true across a lot of what we're doing now. That, uh, um, and I guess you know the, the burgeoning of, of media and podcasts and the like, allowing people to to spruik their opinions, which are not based on facts. They're based on belief systems, and belief systems are all well and good to help you your philosophy, but they don't determine what is happening. They are just a way of helping you to understand the world. It's very interesting what you say, and we'll move off the climate change thing in a moment and on to some other things. But I think that it's a very relevant conversation, and I don't always get to have it on this podcast. So mm. that idea of, they, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day. They were, you know, commenting on something that I shared online, and they said, well, you know, what makes you think you know more than this scientist? Mm. And I was like, very simply, I don't think that I do. Mm. I have no idea about climate science. I have done absolutely no research into it myself. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm up to date with the common thinking, but the yeah. point is, I've done no peer-reviewed studies. No. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think no, I did... I've never had to put together yeah. a study and no. have it published and I wouldn't, have it peer-reviewed. If I looked at all the maps, I still would not have the level of intelligence to understand what those maps and charts and things meant anyway, because I don't have the sure. background and, it, and it's really in that area. Really, really complicated. Uh, but the people whose job it is to know these things, yeah. their best guess and their best theories and their best tested theories, and some of them, like you said, theories that are, are continued to be proved right until they're proved wrong, because yeah. that's what the scientific method is, that you'll keep testing it and testing yeah. it until it turns out that perhaps it isn't the best working theory. And for then that. you change your opinion. So what's happened between us trusting the engineer or that you know makes sure that the plane flies? Like yeah. I walk onto a plane without ever you know, reading yes. a whole article about, you know, plane engineering and go, I'm not sure this is right. Oh, you know, I've read a couple of manuals now and I yeah. just don't know. Yeah, I trust that person to do their job. Yeah. I think probably a lot of the time when people go and see their GP, they trust them or is that the information age, has the fact that people can now Google things, the fact that people can access this information, that their brain and training and all these things isn't in a place to properly understand, change the way it is to be even a GP these days? It, well, it does mean that a lot of people come in with a lot of misinformation because they've Googled it, um, which most people call research and I'd like to call investigated yeah. or examined. Um, whereas research is actually um, taking uh, a hypothesis and testing it. But looking at other people's research enables you to really find anything you want on the internet and I love it when people come in who've Googled their symptoms and, and found their disease and, and have looked at the, the, the treatment. Two things. One is that people with really, really rare diseases often know more about their diseases than their GPs. And they have actually looked at the papers and discussed it. But the most common thing is the anti-vaxxers. And they can get into a bubble, as we all do, of listening to only a few websites. You know, I read news online. I, you know, no one gets a newspaper anymore. Well, maybe some people do. But um, 
the the news um, app that I use curates the news to the news that I want to read. And so, of course, I start to get a certain biased view, whereas in the old days, the newspapers would print what they wanted me to read. Um, and so there's been a real change so that you can lose perspective. And, you know, that's the role of science is to actually give people perspective to present facts and show that hypotheses are being uh, rigorously tested. And, uh, you know, Tim mentioned talks about taking out your, you know, philosophies and your beliefs and hitting them with a cricket bat until they get their real meaning. And, uh, you know, I really believe in that, that we need to look at our beliefs and ideas and say, is this true or not? And am I just fooling myself because I'm reading in a certain glorified bubble of how this algorithm thinks I should be reading news. So uh, all this, I think, is very relevant to the topical of medicinal cannabis and cannabis in general, yeah. because when it comes to, you know, confirmation bias bubbles, when it comes to the idea of fake news, when it comes to the idea of what is you know, myth and what is fact and what has been tested and is not just a hunch or you yeah. know, s somebody taking the idea that, uh, you know, road accidents are down this 10% since they brought in this. You can't necessarily say that one causes the other. Yeah, no. this is the world that we, you operate in in a little bit. So when you were approached to have a job in this field, were you aware what you were walking into at that point? Well, I, I came with my eyes open. I knew there was a huge reticence amongst the medical community to this recreational drug. I knew that there was a huge amount of hype on the internet about how effective this was and it cures everything. And it's completely safe and has no side effects. Well, to, to use your example from before, because like I am connected to a whole bunch of different, you know, cannabis advocacy groups mm. online. And yep. so often what you see in your feed, you know, not the stuff I'm clicking on, but because of the, you know, other sites that you are associated with. Yeah you see those articles yeah, and you see that on that same page where they've actually, you know, presented something quite factual. You also see the thing of like, so-and-so gets cured of their cancer by, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, this is not helping. No. This it, is not helping anybody. <clears throat> and there's a lot of misinformation <coughs> amongst my colleagues and amongst the public um, about how this product works and what this product is. And, uh, you know, that most of... As I've said, the, most of the medical community learnt everything from smoking weed in university, but no understanding of the pharmacokinetics or the, the science of the receptors of the endocannabinoid system. So the human body contains a, a system of receptors that are present in every body system for cannabinoids. And it's actually present in every um, part of the animal kingdom. So every single species has an endocannabinoid system and it's ubiquitous that it's throughout the entire body. So it must be really important. But the endocannabinoid system is not recognised until 1997. So we've only known about it for 20 years and <coughs> many of the average age of doctors in Australia is over 50. So most of them don't know anything about it. And we need to include it in the curriculum in, um, in, in medical schools. We need to include it in the curriculum in 
in pharmacology so we can understand it better and how to use it better. So what is it? Like, as in, like, if you were going to explain it to, well, me, <laughs> but also, you know, the listeners, I imagine, you say it was discovered, you say that it's in everything, but what does that actually mean? So the endocannabinoids, the human endocannabinoid system is a series of receptors that uh, in the neurons, uh, in the neurons is in the presynapse, that is, it, um, it signals these um, these neurotransmitters, the endocannabinoids, um, it signals to that neuron to stop producing a lot of the other neurotransmitters. So dopamine, uh, for instance, and serotonin. And so it has an effect on those neurotransmitters coming the other way across the synapse. And in a sense, its, it's job is homeostasis, that is balancing. And in the sort of conditions we're treating like Parkinson's disease and, and chronic pain, uh, multiple sclerosis, there's an imbalance. And so it's thought, believed, that the endocannabinoid system improves the balancing between the neurons. And we don't know what doses we need. We don't know what combination of endocannabinoids we need. Um, but the phytocannabinoids, those cannabinoids that come from the plant, um, stimulate those same receptors and so they have the same action they hang around for a bit longer so your natural endocannabinoids the human endocannabinoids um, one of them's called anandamide which means bliss in Sanskrit um, which is nice <laughs> but um, they last minutes and so that signaling is very very rapid uh, for the phytocannabinoids ones that come from the plant um, they last for hours and some of the synthetic cannabinoids, K2, spice, you know, the, the dronabinol, um, they last for days. And so they have different effects. And that's why uh, K2 and spice are actually much more dangerous than the phytocannabinoids because they hang around a lot longer. They bind to the receptor and stay on the receptor for a very long period of time. So what do we know uh, at the moment about the practical use of medicinal cannabis like what do we what can you actually say that we know at this point because there are vested interests on both sides sure. you know you talk about the idea of you know pre-existing companies and organizations and you know might be religious it might be a whole range of reasons over the history race you know that uh, you know marijuana that cannabis has been illegal uh, i you know, was living in america when a lot of the states went to medicinal firstly and then went to you know, a lot of the states now, well, some of the states now and increasingly more of the states. I read this morning that New York is looking to, you know, go legal very soon. And if you've got L.A. and New York, you know, it's a huge part of America, you know, culturally at the very least, where, you know, cannabis is going to be legal, not just medicinally legal. What do we know? Because you'll hear, you know, the, the right-wing shock jocks tell you that it's the end of civilization, but you'll hear you know, the people over the other end going that it's a cure-all from everything from the opioid crisis to cancer to every other ailment that you've ever had in your entire life. You can, you know, fix it by smoking weed. And then, of course, there's the people who are, well, I'm interested in this as a medicine, but I don't know if, you know, I, I by me saying that it has practical effects as medicine, that we should open the gate to everybody just smoking pot whenever they want it. So... There's a lot to unpick there, and I don't expect you to have perfect answers for 
for all of it. But this is the context of where we are right now, particularly in Australia, because it always feels like, you know, as America goes, Australia, you know, gradually follows afterwards. And it feels like in Australia, you're in the middle of what happens in Australia around cannabis, around cannabis policy, around how cannabis can be used as medicine. This is where those decisions are being made right now and where the industry uh, will follow in Australia from here. Okay, that's a pretty heavy responsibility that I put on your shoulders. It's a big, long question. Well, it's not a question really. It's more a, I'm going to set a table of things that I would like to unpack. You choose how to answer bits and pieces of it as we go. All right. So uh, cannabis has been used as a medicine for maybe 10,000 years. Certainly in recorded history, um, which dates back 10,000 years, we can say that the Assyrians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the uh, Indians, the Chinese have been using it for millennia um, as a medicine for treatment of um, epilepsy and pain and um, female reproductive issues, which I think is endometriosis, um, anxiety and depression and all sorts of medicinal uses and um, wasn't really taken to the West until about the 18th, 19th century. Um, and so it was, it was brought into the, into the UK in about 1860 and started to be used as a medicine. It was already being used as a euphoric and as a recreational drug at that stage. There were opium dens. They were also using laudanum and all sorts of, um, uh, of drugs for recreational use. But the use as a medicine um, really didn't come to the West until, you know, the, the 18th, 19th century. And then that was the time of the rise of scientific method and there were quite a number of publications between 1850 and 1900 um, looking at its use and saying that it was a very useful drug in medicine. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, if you'd walked into any pharmacy in Australia, about 6% of the medications that they would prescribe you for your headache or your epilepsy or your multiple sclerosis contained cannabis oil. And so it was widely used. And in, um, in 1936, the uh, American Medical Association went to Congress and said, please don't ban this drug. This is a very useful medicine and we need to do more research on it. And then the Marijuana Tax Act was brought in in 1937, which essentially spread throughout the world and made marijuana an illegal drug. And there was a huge propaganda effort. So for 9,000 years, it's been completely legal and people have used it and it made up about 6 to 10% of medicines for all sorts of coughs and colds and scabby holes. Um, but... Uh, for only 80 years, it's been illegal. And so all the knowledge we had prior to 1937 has been lost. And we're starting all over again. Now we're looking at much more as a pharmaceutical. And, uh, you know, you talk about North America. Canada has been using um, cannabis as a, um, uh, as a medicine for the last 20 years. The Israelis have been using it as a medicine since the mid-90s. Um, and then, of course, nearly half of the US, 50 US states, um, 
have legalised cannabis in some form or other, whether for medical purposes or recreational. But the opportunity we have here in Australia is that the only legal option available is a highly regulated pharmaceutical product with an extract of two of the major components of the cannabis oil. Delta 9 THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, and cannabidiol. And those two make up the vast majority of the oil from the plant. And it's a highly purified extraction process that allows them to say exactly what the contents are in the bottle. However, if you go to California and you decide to have medicinal cannabis, you will have the plant. And the plant is extraordinary. Uh, and it contains over 500 botanicals that are all active and interactive between each other. But you don't know what concentration you're getting. I compare it to aspirin. So, Will, if you came to see me uh, with a headache and I said, Will, I want you to take two aspirin and call me in the morning, I know that you are getting 600 milligrams of acetyl salicylic acid. It was the first pharmaceutically manufactured product by eight, in 1897 by Bayer. The other product they were going to do was heroin. But the CEO's mum had rheumatoid arthritis, so they went for aspirin. Um, <laughs> As someone who suffers from arthritis, I reckon the heroin might have probably <laughs> taken was, the edge it, off a little bit more. It's a really effective drug <laughs> yeah. um, for the treatment of cough. And, uh, but obviously it can be abused. Mm. Um, but that product, that those two aspirin I give you, contain 600 milligrams of acetyl salicylic acid. It's derived from the bark of the willow tree. Now, if I was a hedge witch, I would say to you, Will, go down to the local park, pick the bark off the tree, off a willow tree, stew it up as a tea and drink that. Now, you may well get some acetyl salicylic acid, but I don't know what concentration and I don't know what else is in it. And that's a little bit the difference between smoking, you know, the leaves or the flower of a marijuana plant and having a highly extracted pharmaceutical agent because you don't really know what you're getting. We have millennia of information on the safety of smoking or eating this plant, but I don't know exactly what you're getting, so I don't know which bit works, in whom, and how much you need. Um, what's become clear is the amount of the, the number of milligrams of THC and CBD you require is infinitesimal compared to smoking a joint. So a joint roughly contains somewhere between 150 and 250 milligrams of THC. The plant has been bred hydroponically by drug cartels for the last 40 years to increase the amount of THC and actually breed out the CBD component. And that means that, you know, that gets you high and gives you that recreational buzz. But in terms of a therapeutic, we're prescribing in the region of 15 to 25 milligrams of THC with a balanced amount of CBD. Um, and that's in general, but that seems to be more effective than much higher doses. So, you know, that uh, a joint is 10 to 15 times the amount that we're prescribing. And it's a little bit like the alcohol story that if you have a glass of wine at night, um, 
that may well make you feel a bit more relaxed and, and help you to sleep. If you have three bottles of wine, I would suggest to you that that may be bad for you. And so we need to find the therapeutic dose. And that's the most important thing. And that's what we're trying to discover and to you know, delineate. How much research is there internationally on finding that, that therapeutic dose? Well, it's difficult. And that's what I was saying, that in North America, it's really difficult because um, if you were to come to see me as a GP in Canada, I would give you a letter of authority allowing you to use cannabis for your medical condition. And that means you can go down to the local shop, or quite literally a local shop, and buy whatever you like. You can buy flour, you can buy it vaped, you can buy it in oils, you can buy it in gummy bears. Yeah, all bets, all bets are off, essentially. Yeah. Like, basically, once you've got the letter, you can go down there and essentially it'd be like your doctor saying, look, you know, you're unwell, so yeah. we're just going to give you five minutes in the pharmacy. <laughs> just yeah. take some bottles, take see some what you like. Yeah. Take some stuff. Yeah. And, you know, again, we know the safety of this product, and so that's probably not unsafe. Mm but it's probably not the therapeutic dose you need. And we haven't got to that level where we can say that anywhere in the world. There's a recent study came out of Israel that I was looking at where they gave people 20 grams of flour to smoke over a month and, you know, to see whether it worked. Now, the flour, that flour, contains somewhere between 15 to 25% THC, which is a huge range, whereas what we're prescribing... Um, you know, is uh, what's written on the bottle is what's in the bottle. And so if I say there's 10 milligrams per mil, then there is 10 milligrams per mil. And you, and you can then study the reactions of these people over a period of time is yeah. the idea. So we, our clinics are using real-world evidence. That is, we're collecting data on every patient who comes to the clinic, a little bit like the Mayo Clinic, so it's a private clinic, but we're collecting data on people and um, trying to determine what dose works for which clinical indication and what's the safety profile. And we, ca we can't know that from the North American studies because their products are so varied that I've got no idea what you're taking. Is there an interest over there to be studying it even? I mean, it feels like... Uh there is obviously a lot of people who have no interest in actual doing actual scientific studies around it. You know, the idea was that they wanted people to be able to access weed and now, you know, they either sell or want to be able to access weed and that, that job is done. And so yeah. no more studies need to be done, to be honest. Uh, uh, all our studies that we needed to be done are done. I can now buy weed legally. Everything's yeah. fine. But that's not where you're coming from in this process. So... Is there people like you in North America? Is there people like you in other places trying oh, to sure. do these similar and sort of medical studies? You know, the, the Canadians, since 2016, the pharmaceutical products have been much more widely available and there's been much more interest from the medical profession and whether this works. So in the US and in Canada and in Israel and in Australia, um, we started to do research then. And that's why people are really disappointed because they say, hasn't there been research done already? And I say, it's really new that this highly refined pharmaceutical product has not really been available in or legal um, in Australia since 2016. So we're in its infancy. We're only in the first three years. 
And then we're dealing with the sort of socio-political um, uh, drivers where people are saying, well, I've been smoking weed since the 70s and uh, I know it's safe and it fixes my back pain, so I don't want to know anything else. And we need to treat this and understand the pharmacokinetics, the safety profile and the sort of dosing that people need because it appears that the, the, the cannabis weed smoking groups are overdosing. That is, they're having more than they actually need. And so if I can find a dose that doesn't interfere with cognition and thinking and that allows you to function normally um, but reduces pain or reduces epileptic fits or reduces spasm or improves sleep, then that's a useful therapeutic agent. Well, it's useful regardless of, and uh, I don't, uh, because I've we've spoken about this before, but I, I can put on the record that, like, I think there is great value. I'm a great advocate for medicinal use of it, and I am a personal advocate for recreational use. And, but I do think that they can be viewed as two very separate things, and I think we get in trouble when we actually view them as the same thing. Yeah, let's let's deal with the idea that this as medicine delivered as medicine in a way that is being studied and delivered at the exact right amount because you know what? Yes, I could like smoke a heap of weed on the weekend and my hips won't work, mm. but I can't drive my car. No. So is there something that on a Wednesday when I want to my hips not to hurt but also drive my car that is you know, that, that works in between that, even for the people who believe in recreational as well as medicinal, there are applications for there being a purely medicinal version of the product. Absolutely. That, um, you know, the recreational product gives you a high, um, and much like alcohol has, has effects that make people feel good. And, um, they are in doses that are beyond what we're prescribing. But interestingly, in our, in our uh, clinics, so we've got clinics in four centres currently, um, so Sydney, Melbourne, Tinton Bar and Perth, um, and we've seen 1,000 patients over the last 12 months. And the average age of those patients is mid-70s. So that surprises people, but people in the mid-70s have a lot of pain. Um, they're more likely to have cancer. And they don't want to smoke weed. They want to have a therapeutic product. And interestingly, when you know Canada recently um, legislated recreational cannabis, the specialised cannabis clinics thought that was going to be a big hit on their clinics. Um, but actually, it increased the number of people coming to their clinics because people don't want to smoke weed. They want to take a medication that makes them feel better so that they can function better. And you're right, if you're going to, you know, smoke five cones over the, you know, on Friday night, you're not going to be able to work or drive or, you know, do anything for several hours. And in Australia, if you have a detectable quantity of THC, um, then it's illegal to drive. And we're trying to look at changing that legislation because for medicinal cannabis, we're not seeing that impairment in driving with these low doses. And I know Fiona Patton here in Victoria uh, has brought legislation into state parliament to change the Road Traffic Act to say, well, for medicinal cannabis, and you know, there's a lot of misinformation about what m medicinal cannabis means, 
uh, but prescribed by your doctor, a pharmaceutical agent, then it's about impairment, not about detection. And that's been defeated, I think, twice in the last 12 months. It's an incredible, because, because THC, THC can stay in your system for a much longer time than oh, weeks and weeks and the weeks. other drugs. Yeah. And so your level of impairment might be, you know, like you may, well, I've not had a drink for two weeks, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, still got and not smoked, you know, yeah. any weed and, you know, you perfectly, you'd let me, you know, drive your heavy, you know, heavy equipment, yeah. but if you've got a detectable amount in your system. So that seems like there's a flaw in the system. Yeah. And it also, to me, seems that it discourages people who would break the law from ever trying to obey the law. Yeah. Because if you're going to get detected for two weeks or three weeks, how's somebody going to go, I won't, you know, you've got to teach people responsibility around these things. Yeah. You shouldn't be smoking a cone in the morning and then driving your car to the shops in the same way as you shouldn't have and, a couple and, of shots. And, and that's it. about impairment. Yes. And in Canada, they have the, the police do an impairment test, which is a little bit more sophisticated than walking the white line. But mm. essentially, it's walking the white line and saying, can you yeah. stand up? And of course, if you have THC and you have alcohol, they're additive, uh, and you have your MS Contin and your Indones, and you're having your antidepressants and Finergan, and then you drive, of course you're impaired and you shouldn't be driving, but that's judgment. <laughs> and, um, you know, people want to have hard and fast lines mm. and it's not hard and fast. And we don't know what level causes impairment. The Canadians have gone for um, 50 micrograms per mil uh, in the blood, um, uh, uh, sorry, five micrograms per mil in the blood. And we just don't know whether that's the level or not that causes impairment in everyone. Do you find it hard to test these things when there's so many barriers in the way? Like, is that part of the problem with finding this good information? Is That's that exactly right. The research has been limited by legality and uh, by illegality. And uh, there was a fantastic paper published in the Journal of Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, where a very um, uh, expert group reviewed 10,000 publications on the use of cannabis in medicine. They came up with 100 recommendations, and those recommendations really form the structure for the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA in Australia, to allow the prescription of cannabinoid-based medicines. And, you know, I go to many, many meetings with my colleagues who say, ah, oh, there's no evidence. Well, there's truckloads of evidence. There are not really big randomised controlled trials with cannabis, and part of the reason for that is the legality, and so they've been unable to be done until just recently, and the other thing is that the patent for cannabis doesn't exist in a single pharmaceutical company. So if, you know, your Pfizer's or your Glaxo's or your Janssen's had a, you know, had the patent for this drug, then sure, there'd be big randomised controlled trials and they'd be doing it. But the product is, uh, you know, a, a botanical and so it's very hard to get the patent for it. So we're not going to get what my colleagues would like, which is a very large randomised controlled trial on pharmaceutical grade um, cannabis. There are some small trials and they've been very promising, but they're only small trials. So how, how do you proceed from here? Because obviously it's a, in a very 
Okay, firstly, I'll ask this. What's the, what are the biggest hurdles facing the industry in Australia at the moment still? Um, the biggest hurdles are collecting enough data um, that we need funding for serious research, and I don't know where that funding is going to come from. Uh, it's not going to come from government because governments aren't interested in uh, you know, large-scale randomised controlled trials for a medication that will make some pharmaceutical company a large amount of money. Um, the pharmaceutical companies are not interested in investing in a large randomised controlled trial. So we have to do different sorts of trials. And um, we have to do observational trials. We have to do case cohort trials, um, which have power. Um, but they're not the gold standard. But as with time, longitudinally, those, those, uh, those sorts of trials, those data collection trials, those observational trials, are going to give us better and better evidence that allows us to say this works. Randomised controlled trials, though they're the gold standard, have flaws. And uh, anyone who has read Ben Goldacre's um, books on bad science and bad pharma and bad medicine um, would recognise that randomised controlled trials have their problems. But they are a way of taking away human bias. And, you know, I don't know how much of what we're prescribing is placebo. And the way to determine that is to introduce randomly a placebo to find out whether it works or not. It's no good for the person it doesn't work on, though, is it? Correct. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the flaw in that yeah. system always, yeah. isn't it? Um, so I want you to come and see me in a private clinic where this medication is costing you somewhere between two or $300 mm. a month, um, but you may or may yeah. not be getting the Yeah, drug. but I may just be giving you a sugar pill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> it might work anyway. Yeah. We're not sure yet. Yeah. We're testing it on you. <laughs> but that is problem. I mean, in a way, I, like, we laugh about that, mm. but of course... You know, there are so many limits on people accessing this medicine at the mm. moment. One is that, you know, the proper studies haven't been done in, you know, that you are to grow it properly, to learn how you can use it best. There needs to be at the moment, some experimentation with the people who need it most. Yeah. And secondly, that the price is, you know, prohibitive at the moment. And it feels like, I mean, there's more than a thousand people in Australia who have, you know, symptoms that would qualify themselves, I imagine, to access, you know, the product that you're offering right now. So that's only a very small amount, even that it seems at the moment mm. who are, so what, why is that? Why is it such a small amount so far? Why is the cost so prohibitive? Are they all the same reasons? Like talk to me a little bit about that. Complicated. Mm. Um, access is a real problem that my guesstimate would be that roughly three to four million Australians would benefit from medicinal cannabis uh, in terms of reducing pain, reducing opiate um, uh, dependence um, in improving lives. Currently, we think there are about 20,000 people in Australia taking medicinal cannabis. So that's a big gap. So there's an access problem and it's a, the access is about uh, cost. And the access is about, uh, and the access is difficult because most doctors don't know enough about it to prescribe it, um, and don't feel comfortable prescribing it. Even if they believe that it works, they still don't feel comfortable in prescribing it because there hasn't been enough hard science um, leavened at it. And then, thirdly, is the 
um, is the regulators are making it difficult to prescribe. That has changed dramatically in the last 12 months. It's much easier to prescribe it now than it was 12 months ago. Um, but even so, it requires, for an unregistered product, requires um, the TGA to approve its, its prescription. So there are three reasons that, and, and then there's the reticence amongst, um, uh, amongst the public to use this because most of us remember the uh, reefer madness and the propaganda put out by the US in the 1940s and 50s. And isn't that extraordinary that propaganda put out then has, you know, sees it as a, a, dr a, a gateway drug to, you know, all sorts of horrible things. And now in the US they're doing some really interesting trials looking at people with heroin addiction and ice addiction and alcohol addiction and benzodiazepine addiction and using medicinal cannabis to help them to come off them. It's a gateway drug, but through the other way. It's an exit drug. <laughs> it's an exit. Yeah. <laughs> the gateway also gets yeah. you back out onto the street, yeah. it turns out. So the out. gate goes both ways. Yeah. No, um, I, I, the joke that I've always made, but I think it's just a point worth making while we're talking about this, is the, the main reason that marijuana is a gateway drug is that when it's illegal, you have to go to a drug dealer to get yeah. it. And, and then they'll give you something turns else. Out, turns out the yeah. drug dealers often have, you know, a full range of products. Yes. So a lot of the time, that's the reason it was a gateway drug yeah. rather than being anything inherit to the product itself that yeah, made it absolutely made it so. absolutely and we do have to get away from this disparagement of of drugs that some medications have major side effects and we need to be careful about prescribing them and some are addictive and benzodiazepines are a really good example that they were introduced in the 70s because barbiturates were so dangerous that people would have to take more and more barbiturates to get the same effect. And in the 70s, they introduced benzodiazepines, thallium and, and, and serapax and all those drugs, um, because they were fantastic for anxiety and they weren't addictive. Well, then I've spent the next 40 years trying to get people off benzos because they're highly addictive. And that's some of the reticence with my colleagues that they say, we don't know about this cannabis drug. Maybe we're just starting the opioid crisis or the benzodiazepine crisis all over again with a new drug. It's not what we're seeing, and that's why the safety and the, um, the, the use of this product is really, really important for our research because we really want to see how safe it is that it doesn't have any addictive qualities, that there's no withdrawal if you come off cannabis. Um, but there is dependence, and so we all uh, have friends who smoked a lot of dope and uh, became dependent and stopped being able to work or to do anything. Mm -hmm. But I've also got a lot of friends who drink a lot of alcohol who also can't work and can't do it. So, yes, it has some problems, but as I said, it's about dosage and it's about usage that's really important. And If you were starting out, now, this, and answer this, how, queen answer, of the world, answer so this however you feel, yeah. but you've got a choice because the argument would be this, that alcohol, uh, I, I won't lead the witness, that alcohol is also a destructive drug, but it is a legal drug, right? And, and cannabis is not, right? So, so some people would argue that's a justification for why isn't cannabis also legal, you know? And then some people would say, we already have these destructive drugs. Why add another one to the mix? I'm starting out. It's day one, 
and you get to choose. We can have cannabis be legal or we can have alcohol be legal. Which of the two do you choose for its harm or effect to society? There is no question that cannabis is the safer drug than alcohol. You know, I always compare it. If you're going to a soccer game and it was two deadly rivals and all of the you know, thugs were out and they're all going to kill each other, um, <coughs> you know, Arsenal, Liverpool, um, England, Germany, um, Greece, Macedonia, you know, that, that sort of soccer game. Mm -hmm. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer them pierced or stoned? And the short answer is you want them stoned because there'd be no violence, or virtually none. You'd sell out of chicken nuggets, <laughs> but no one would watch the game. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, you certainly couldn't get their attention. No. <laughs> that'd, that'd be the problem. No, they'd be interested in the seagulls. <laughs> okay, so there's a range of reticence towards it, but there's obviously, as, as we've seen worldwide, there's a whole bunch of places that are now using it medicinally. Oh. That, that, that gateway is, is opened. So what happens next for you in Australia now? You've talked about it's much more easy. Well, it's more easy now than it was you know, in the last 12 months to prescribe than it was before that. But does it need to get much more easy to prescribe than it is already? Like, how does that process even work? We need to get the evidence in front of us. And that's where we're, you know, we need to be working. Um, so if we can gather enough evidence, then we can start to show that this is an effective pharmaceutical. If we can show that it's safer than opiates and that it is um, opiate sparing, then it really should be part of our normal armamentarium. We haven't got those data yet. Um, I believe that's probably the case. In Ontario, the drug escalation policy for the treatment of chronic pain has shifted cannabis from a fourth or fifth line drug down to a second line drug. And I think that's probably where it should exist in Australia, but I don't have enough evidence to support that. Um, so we need to collect evidence. And meantime, people are going to have to be patient because it's going to take time to do that. Because as I say, we're not going to be able to do the one and only randomised control trial and and discover that this is effective, we're going to have to use longitudinal case cohort trials, observational trials, and get closer and closer to the answer with time. In Canada, where it's been freely available um, for doctors to prescribe medicinal cannabis for nearly 20 years, only five to 10% of doctors are prescribing it. And that's astonishing to me because I thought it would be much higher. But it's this reticence and this lack of evidence that is staying the hand of clinicians. They don't want to start another epidemic. Uh, we got fooled by pharmaceutical companies about opiates and we don't want to do the same again. Last year in Australia, 1,200 people died from prescription opiates just in one year. Um, and that has been repeated over the last decade. The number of people who have died from recreational cannabis alone uh, as, a, as a drug uh, over the last 10 years is zero. So it's a much safer drug than opiates, but we still need to get the evidence and to show that it's effective so that people can have confidence in taking this product without harm.
So first two and a half. And is there, uh, because obviously the arguments you hear you, around the negatives associated, like you said, no deaths, but, you know, people will, you know, point to studies linking, you know, people, people with schizophrenia to using, you know, pot in their early years. Like, you know, are these the sort of, uh, is there any uh, truth behind those sort of studies? What effect do they have on the work that you're doing? There's an association between um, schizophrenia or, or first psychotic event and marijuana use. Um, that's recreational cannabis. Um, and there's no association between a pharmaceutical grade product and psychosis. None, And zero. indeed, there are some studies uh, being done in the US and in Canada currently looking at using uh, medicinal cannabis, uh, cannabinoid-based medicines, to assist people in early psychosis to delay the onset of psychosis. So it's not cut and dried. Um, we know that some uh, strains of cannabis, uh, particularly the one that came out of Arizona, which is very high in THC called skunk, has been associated, and the Dutch love it, um, that they've been using skunk and there's been an association with mental health disease, psychosis, severe depression, suicidal ideation. So obviously high doses of THC are dangerous in terms of mental health and we need to be very, very cautious. Um, someone with a severe mental health condition, I would not be prescribing this product. We need to determine who it will work in and, and where it will work. And interestingly, those studies coming out of the US in treatment of depression and anxiety are very strong and the treatment for psychosis is still to be proven. Is there any uh, good information around how many people you think... Because we, what we do see is studies around how many Australians have tried cannabis at some mm. stage, and it's a lot. You know, it's yeah. a, a huge percentage of the Australian population have at least, you know, had a joint at uni, you know, yeah. at the very least. When they tick, yeah. they're ha and happy to tick a but, box but on a national survey well, to do it. Right. And... Do we have any sense at the moment about how many people might be self-medicating? And I don't mean self-medicating and they like to, you know, smoke bongs and play PlayStation mm. or whatever, but I mean literally already, you know, using cannabis as medicine, but obviously in the way that they're, you know, in the unregulated and, uh, you know, in a way that they are just, you know, having their best guess. They're getting the bark off the tree and, and making it into the tea. Yeah. And... In chronic pain, there's been quite a bit of work. Um, it looks like before medicinal cannabis was legalised in 2016, that about 30% of people who had chronic pain had at least tried it for their pain um, as an illegal product. And we don't know how many continued. We don't know that's self-reported, so how many actually told the truth. Um, but it's in that sort of region. And... Was it effective? We don't know. Um, so, you know, there just isn't enough work. But yes, people have been using cannabis illegally for their medical conditions. And, you know, every day in the newspaper, there is a, someone whose life was cured by cannabis. And we need to read those very, very carefully. There's very little, there's a lot of disinformation about whether it's THC or CBD, about how they're receiving it. The um, people are importing a lot of oils, CBD oils. There was a huge um, analysis in the UK looking because 
CBD is available on the high street. You can go into any boots in, in the UK and buy CBD bath bombs and CBD shampoo and CBD beer, you know, CBD drinks. Uh, there, there are some states in America where everything has CBD in it. Yeah. You know, coffee, whatever you're going for. It doesn't matter what it you is. Can you can get the CBD get option. It. Yes. Um, when they did an analysis of the products, they found that 40% of them contain no cannabinoids at all. Um, 20% contain THC, which means they were illegal to mm. import. And about 20% of them contain the inactive CBD, CBDA, which is the carboxylated version, which just simply doesn't do anything. So you have to be careful with the claims <coughs> and what it is that uh, people are, are saying. And the, the FDA have uh, in the US have just cracked down on claims of CBD. And so I think that's going to change the mix somewhat. The UK are moving to, um, to allow the use of specific medicinal CBD products, so uh, Epidiolex and um, Sativex, which is a balanced product uh, available in the UK. But um, it's going to be very, very interesting. And it, there's a lot of hype, as you said, you know, that I always talk about the Gartner hype cycle, which essentially means that everyone thinks it cures everything. And then they get the, you know, the trudge of disappointment as it doesn't work. And then we finally get up to the level where we say, this is where it's effective. And that's where we're at Emerald Clinic's trying to get to a point where we can say, this is where it's effective. And I think it's about halfway between those two, you know, uh, points. So what happens next? What we, we've quite, we've talked a lot about, you know, the state of how we've got to here. Yeah. But what happens next? Where do you see this going in the next year? What are you doing in, you know, in the next year? And then what happens after that? So as as we've collected enough data, <coughs> we start to produce um, papers and 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 evidence that supports the regulators, that allows the regulators to be able to say, okay, this is a safe drug, you can continue to prescribe it and we can release a little bit of the control we've had over it. Um, we um, improve the education of my colleagues so that they understand how this product works and which bits are doing the work. Um, <coughs> and we improve access to patients. Um, cost is a huge issue. And uh, we need to find a way of extracting this product so that people can take it safely. Um, we're doing uh, some work now with one of the uh, private insurers because if it's cost effective, then your private insurer is going to be really interested. Um, you know, the, the Department of Veteran Affairs have been uh, very supportive because they can see the benefits and they're getting a lot of demand from, from vets. Um, for PTSD and for pain, and uh, this has been a, a really interesting product used in that. So the regulators will loosen the, the, the bridle a little bit. Um, the, um, the payers will start to see its cost benefit, and patients will have better access to it. That's our goal. Where does this, this new drug that's only a couple of millennia maybe 10 millennia old, um, fit in our pharmacopoeia for the treatment of cancer pain, for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, multiple sclerosis and uh, epilepsy. We still need to work with that. There's been some really great work using CBD for childhood epilepsy, resistant epilepsy. 
and uh, there's a lot of work doing that. We're partnering with an organisation in the UK to look at that. And so we just let's have a look and see what happens. Uh, this has been really fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do it. I have some standard questions that I ask at the end of the oh, podcast. Okay. Look, you know, some of, the, some of them are big, some of them are small. I'm sure you're about to handle them. Uh, firstly, uh, what do you think happens when we die? Uh, we turn to bits of carbon and other parts of our body and our memories live in the people around us. How, uh, I guess you've answered that by the second half of it actually, which is that do you have any, I mean, obviously you're a person of science and a person of science tends to, and look, by the way, just to, you know, that's also probably what I believe. I wouldn't have put it so eloquently, but I, that's, that's a reasonable summary of what I think as well. But uh, how do you find meaning in this life, you know, is it through just the investigation of, of science? Like the fact that you have a very practical understanding of what death means, <laughs> you know, how do, what motivates you to get up in the morning? How do you find passion and meaning in your, in your life? Well, the world is endlessly fascinating and we don't have the answers to so many things and it is extraordinarily beautiful harder to see the CBD skyline at the moment, but just endlessly beautiful. That's what gets me up in the morning. Um, the love of my family, the love of my friends, the, the joy of living on this earth is just extraordinary. Why wouldn't I get up? And are you optimistic about the future of this earth? Because you talk about the smoke outside the window and it's hard to, you know, being an Australian summer where you know, our bushfire season seems to be about six months of the year and it's relentlessly, you know, imposing and people are losing their houses and their, their lives, you know, you know, millions and, you know, billions of animals, you know, lost in this entire thing. It's hard when you're in the middle of this inferno to see much hope for the future, but are you a person who is hopeful for our future? Well, I am hopeful because I think we're all optimistic about um, fixing the problem. And why we have um, governments that clearly for the last 20 years have been unable to move forward and see this as a global problem, I've got no idea. Um, but we as, you know, as the population have to say, that's wrong. You guys need, you're the leaders, you need to come up with a plan and let's try and fix it. And humans are endlessly innovative and sure if we're going to put you know aluminium sails up in in space or we're going to feed sulfur into the uh, into the stratosphere or if we're going to you know find a fusion reactor that uh, produces you know no radiation just water then that's going to happen um, it could have happened 20 years earlier but we will work on that and we're going to have to find a way of carbon capture. But that's not our only problems. Our problems are, you know, sociological problems where we're electing people who don't believe in science. Just, I don't understand that. That, you know, the way I got to here to speak with you, I use GPS, which means global positioning satellite, which means the Earth is a globe and not flat and that it does circle the sun and we've known that for quite a long time. And why there are people able to say that on the interweb and get people to believe them, I've got no idea. And why there has been this loss of faith in science is 
partly driven by science, that every day you read something that someone has discovered that in the next five to ten years is going to change our lives. Now that sure is a way of getting them additional research funding and to give them notoriety, but I'm very sceptical about anybody who says anything beyond five years, you know, a new battery or a, or a new cure for whatever that particular disease is, is it still five years away? You don't know. Um, we're a lot closer with cannabinoid-based medicines than that. We're talking about, you know, 12 months to two years for us to be able to deliver those sorts of outcomes. Um, but even so, we're still struggling with the science and still struggling with what is the correct answer. And people need to be patient, but we need to believe in the science because science has observed facts. Uh, one more. This is it. And then you're off the hook. You've done a great job. I've really enjoyed this. It's been fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Um, so uh, I have a time machine. I don't have a time machine, right. unfortunately. I need to point that out for legal reasons. But for <laughs> the sake of this question. I was going to say, where is it? For the sake of this question, <laughs> I have a time machine. And my time machine question is this. I can take you back to any moment, either in history or in your own life, and you can change it or you can observe it. So you don't have to change it. And we're not looking at the ramifications of it here, but it, it's an opportunity for you to go, well, is there a point in your life you'd like to go back to and say, oh, I would have done this differently? Or is there a point in your life that you'd like to go back to and observe it from the outside to see what it looked like, you know, when you weren't in the moment to observe it externally? If you want to chicken out, you can do from one in history. I give people that option. <laughs> you can go back to a moment in history, but I would personally prefer it's a moment in your own life. Gee, that's a tough question, um, and I don't know the answer. Um, <clears throat> I've really enjoyed my life, and it's, it's, you know, I've had a very privileged, fantastic life. And, uh, you know, I watched the Adam Goods um, documentary last night, and um, there are a number of times in my life where I would have said I'm not a racist person and in fact I'm an anti-racist, I would have said. But having watched that documentary, I can see there are a number of times, how many times can I get off the machine? <laughs> a number of times I would like to correct my casual racism which has been dastardly and, and horrible and hurt people. And uh, I think we're all guilty of that. And you know, I come from a well, position of privilege and yeah. I'd like to fix that. It's, it, that's a really wonderful thing for you to say because that documentary can't help anybody but think that. No. Like, you know, because what the really the documentary is about and which elevates it to, it's not just about the Adam Good story and why it, even if you think you know the Adam Good story from back to front, mm. uh, it is well worth watching the documentary because it is about the idea that you know, when you say casual racism, it wasn't even casual racism because the entire country was casually racist. Yeah. It was appropriate. It wasn't. It, of course, it was not. And this is what it talks about a lot. Of course, it was not appropriate. But the fact that we all lived under this delusion that somehow it was appropriate was. And I think that the fact that you feel regret about that, that's one of the best things that you can do because these people who hold on to the idea that, no, it was okay. You yeah, know, well, no, it was okay because we yeah. all did it in the exactly. 70s, you know. And so, it, but I should still be able to do it now yeah. because we did it back then. Yeah. No, no, no. I think both can be okay. Yeah. I think we can look back and go. Well, it's I made did it difficult know. for comedy, you know, that the yeah. uh, you know the Englishman, the Frenchman, and the Australian walk into a bar. 
I think English and French, you'd still be fine. But I guess <laughs> in, in five years from now, people might be like, well, yeah. you can't you can't joke about the English after what happened after Brexit. <laughs> because, well, you know, poor English. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much for doing this Thanks, uh, today. I really appreciate it. Thank you.